Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Unified Rules of Podcast. I'm Eric Hamidi. And I'm Edmund Kwan. We talk different subject matters about MMA, and since we're our own show and we're not run by anybody, we can talk about whatever we want. This is part two of our episode on Fedor Emelianenko. Where did we leave off on in part one? <laughs> we, we left off on the the Noguera Fedor fight, the first one. Ah, but got it. Yeah, but before we go into that, there was actually some corrections that I wanted to make because I realized that I said some there was something there was some wrong information that I gave in the last episode. So I just wanted to correct that real quick before we get into it. Go for it. One of the things that I I said was that Anderson Silva from Pride and Anderson Silva from the UFC. What I meant to say was Anderson Silva from 2006 to 2013 was a different fighter than the Anderson Silva in Pride. In the first episode, I said Anderson Silva from 2006 to 2007. So there's that. Easy mistake. Yeah. And then do you, I don't know if you remember this, but last week I was saying that Fedor's mom was a gymnastics teacher. Yeah, I vaguely remember that from the uh, beginning. Yeah, well, as it turns out, she wasn't actually a gymnastics teacher. She was into, she was a gymnast and she did it, but she wasn't a teacher. So I don't know what subject matter she did, but, you know, she was just involved with gymnastics. Wait, so was she like a teacher teacher? Just like a normal teacher? Yeah, it seems like it because last week I was saying that she was a gymnastic teacher but as it turns out when i rewatched the interview that fedor did with michael chavello it turns out that she was just a gymnast not a gymnastics teacher she was into it but she wasn't teaching courses on it or anything hmm. yeah so that maybe was- she taught pe i don't know i don't know i'm just yeah. i'm just i'm just making foolish stories here <laughs> <laughs> don't be spreading wrong information edmund it's our show. We can say almost anything we want. I mean, sure, but I figure one of the things that will uh, that will make us appealing to listeners is the fact that anything that we say on here, it's going to be the truth. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, as as true as we researched. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So that, that was just something because in the interview, he's talking about his mom and he even said that she did gymnastics as an amateur, but she wasn't she wasn't teaching classes about it whether she was a PE teacher I don't know because Fedor doesn't talk about that in the interview also last week I said that when Noguera beat Mark Coleman he won via triangle choke but as it turns out it was actually triangle arm bar so it might be a little technical but you know just throwing that out there triangle arm bar so is that like an arm bar from the triangle choke position I think it's, I think, well, my understanding is that a triangle armbar is a combination of both, where you have the position of a triangle, but instead of just pulling your opponent's right. head in and choking, you're also you're going for the armbar. Yeah, you're also extending the arm and bending it. So, gotcha. That wasn't totally wrong, but as far as his official record, it's triangle armbar. Gotcha. Uh, let me yeah, see man. here. And then also another thing that I said last week was that, uh, where was it? Oh, I was saying that uh, 
Antonio Noguera not really training a whole lot leading up to the first Fedor fight. I said something along the lines of that was definitely an issue, but I should I I need to correct that because it wasn't it wasn't as if Noguera wasn't training as seriously. It's just something that may have contributed. And when I look at the book here, Total MMA from last week, Noguera, he was just saying leading up to their third fight in 2004, he pushed me. I'm much better than I was two years ago. Before I had him, I felt like I am going to train for what? And basically that was, I mean, that's just him saying that he felt motivated and maybe by losing to Fedor, it provided the motivation for him to take training more seriously again. But it wasn't, I kind of implied last week that that was definitely a factor and oh, Noguera was slacking off in training and that's why Fedor was able to beat him. But just wanted to make that revision real quick. Good, good. Yeah. And, you know, to kind of to kind of pick up from where we left off last week, because we had a pretty we had a pretty significant topic or not topic, but we had a significant conversation about jujitsu. And I've re-listened to our conversation a lot. And what I realized is that in the moment, I didn't quite understand what you were getting at. And I've had a lot of I've, I've created a lot of responses to that. And there was no way I was going to remember it. So oh, boy. Like, yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. It's nothing bad. It's just that I knew I wasn't really going to re- remember that all this information. So what I did earlier today was that I kind of got down all my thoughts about that in the moment. And I just thought I would share that with you. Because when you were saying that, when you were talking about Nogueira and Verdum's jujitsu. Yeah. At the time, I was thinking from the perspective of jujitsu was new and other fighters were learning. Other fighters were learning it. And because they were behind, their defense wasn't great. But what you were getting at was that since jujitsu was new, fighters on top weren't throwing as much offense. I, uh, more like fighters on bottom were not as offensive. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's what I meant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, if you're on top, you're always gonna be offensive. It's just the nature of being on top in a fight. I feel but, like. But because I mean, for me, the way I understand is that since fighters, since jujitsu was such a new thing, for some reason, I was thinking in the in the from the perspective of the fighter on top, as opposed to the fighter on bottom, because. If jujitsu is such a new thing and people are learning it, then you might not face a whole lot of opposition in the beginning. And maybe that's what fighters on the bottom were accustomed to for the longest time. Well, I feel like, I mean, if you look at like the old Hoist Gracie fights, he was on the bottom and like he'd usually just clinch really tight until, like I said, it was like that that old style of just grinding down your opponent's stamina, you know, you just clinch them really tight until they got tired or just really pushed really hard. And then he got an opening for a sweep or an arm bar or submission, Mm -hmm. you know? Okay. I feel you can't do that nowadays because if you just clinch someone super tight, they'll just transition to a new position and just beat you down again, you know? (laughs) And is that, is that a product of people just being more knowledgeable and better at jujitsu than, 
say 1993 i think it's that and it's just that huge emphasis on wrestling yeah. wrestlers have dominated because they're so good on top they're so yeah. good at trans transitioning from different positions on top and if you're not changing your position on the bottom you're just going to get overwhelmed nowadays people they keep moving on the bottom you know I, I think i was just watching some like fight night fights that were on espn plus this past weekend i think like two weeks ago or so i was just oh, watching okay. something it's like everyone on the bottom is just moving like crazy you know they're like mm -hmm. they're just gonna eat like the two punches and just shrimp or try yeah. to like get a new position on the bottom people back then i feel like would have just clinched mm -hmm. waited clinched again until they found like a good position or they try to tire out their opponent and then yeah work from that yeah so basically what you were getting at was the fact that fighters on bottom were a lot less offensive than right. they are now yeah yeah, exactly. There was, there was a few other takeaways that I had from it. It's funny because it was kind of, I was just in a stream of consciousness and I was getting these notes down. So uh -huh. when I say that at the time, I didn't realize or understand really what you were saying. What I wrote down was that what you were, what you were getting at was that jujitsu was, it, when it came up in 1993, at the time, people thought once it hits to the, once it hits the ground, you just do jujitsu. I think that right. was one of the things that you were emphasizing because at the time, I guess fighters may have thought that that's what I have to do on the ground in order to survive or win this fight. Yeah. And when I started thinking about this a little more, I thought to myself, fighters didn't think that they could incorporate jujitsu into their strengths in order to win a fight. So they try to be a skilled jujitsu practitioner until finally they decided I can use what works for me, for example, being a good wrestler with submission skills, as opposed to trying to be a good jujitsu expert, because right. that's not going to happen against an opponent with so many years of experience. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically what I'm getting at. Like what John Jones, you know, world champ, world star wrestler, you know, and he's like, uh, what, a couple of years ago, he posted that picture where he was just like a blue belt at a Gracie Baja. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because yeah. I, I figure at that point, fighters reached a level where instead of trying to become so good at jujitsu, they learned how to, they took the elements from jujitsu and incorporated into their game in order to become yeah. successful, win fights and all that stuff. Basically, yeah, just working off your back and probably a good chunk of the submissions. Because, I mean, it's like if you're already, like, a good wrestler, yeah. why, why would you learn how to work off your back when you've been trained to just stay off your back? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's... Like, it wouldn't make sense. Their, it's working towards their strengths. Exactly. So, I mean... I guess, I mean, Verdum's different because yeah, like, yeah. he's been doing jiu-jitsu his whole life. Which is funny. I, I thought Verdum was like a lot younger than he was, but oh, he's yeah. actually like, he's actually about the same age as yeah, Noguera. Yeah. So that, yeah. was, that was like a weird thing for me. But 
I mean, I guess he kept up with the jujitsu game long enough to. Well, in what I wrote down, in what I wrote down, I actually kind of addressed that stuff too. So Uh a good wrestler will learn submission skills as opposed to trying to be a skilled jujitsu practitioner. Right. You're not going to become a person with 10 years of experience in a few months or a year or whatever. So yeah. In addressing Noguera and Verdum, it's not so much that Noguera was more passive and Verdum was more aggressive. I mean, if that is the case, I need to look into that a little bit more. But they were just products of their time. Because exactly back in the early 90s, up until I think you said the late 2000s. Yeah. The Gracies were the most prominent jujitsu practitioners. So their style of waiting things out maybe influence other people's approach to, to jujitsu because when something is successful, people tend to emulate that. So if, right. the Gracies, if the Gracie style is working, then people are going to copy that. Exactly. And I don't know, have you ever tried any of like the, I, I think we touched on it too last episode. And you have like the 10th planet stuff, the rubber guard and all that. No, I haven't. I like kind of like just, brushed up on just because like I dabbled with it a little bit when I was learning jujitsu yeah just because you know I was at the stage where I was like oh dude if I just learn a bunch of new techniques that's how I'm gonna you know get submissions or whatever but um I it was interesting because like the whole rubber guard system is basically like a whole clinching system the Um, rubber guard that yeah, like okay. Eddie Bravo developed the rubber guard because he's flexible, but it's kind of like the same principle. It's like you're just trying to close the distance from the guy on top of you so he can't punch you at all. Oh, Which so I found. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I just found that really interesting because on jujitsu forums, especially I remember back in the day, people would talk shit about 10th Planet, how it's like, oh yeah, these guys won't win on competitions because you're just stalling out the clock on the bottom and blah 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 and then like the defenders would be like well no you're just trying to clinch them so they can't punch you so you can work submissions off your back at that time and that very much i feel like is a product of like you said the product of the times and like you look at at, go ahead if you look at like eddie bravo's lineage yeah he learned from uh jean-jacques machado who was like the cousins of the Gracies, you know? So it's a very direct lineage of the old school Brazilian jiu-jitsu kind of style. So Yeah, yeah. And when it comes to Nogueira and Fabricio Verdum, when you look at the lineage, according to BJJHeroes.com for Nogueira, the lineage goes from Mitsuyo Maeda to Carlos Gracie to Carlson Gracie to Ricardo de la, de la Hiva, yeah. yeah, de la Hiva, and then Noguera. And for Verdum, it's Carlos Gracie, Helio Gracie, Alvaro Barreto, yeah, Silvio Berin. I'm not sure on these Brazilian names. Yeah, if we're, if we're botching the pronunciation, sorry guys. Well, I mean, he's just two steps away from Elio Gracie, I guess. Yeah, well, what, I guess what I'm getting at is that Noguera is only one step away from a Gracie because it's Carlson Gracie and then 
De La Hiva and then mm -hmm. Rivera. So I wonder if by only having one person in between a Gracie and him, Nogueira was more influenced by the Gracie style of jujitsu. I don't, here's the, like, I know like Verdum is still actively training jujitsu right now. Uh-huh. I mean, when's the last time Nogueira fought? I, I guess it's kind of unfair because I guess Nogueira, is he retired now? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's retired. Yeah, he's He hasn't retired. fought in years, right? Yeah, his last fight was in August 2015. He fought okay. Stefan Struve. Struve won by decision. Yeah, because I just saw Verdum fight like two weeks ago or something. Yeah. Or last month. Yeah, so shortly after that fight, Nogueira retired. Verdum has kept fighting, although in 2018, he failed a drug test so he was suspended for two years came back in may well you know brazilians man <laughs> right, right. Apparently, apparently there's a thing with that yeah but yeah i mean i know like like i said one of the assistant coaches for jiu-jitsu at my muay thai at sedia tongue mm -hmm. he is a black belt under cobrina yeah here in la and this guy cobrina is like the master of like open guard in the jujitsu community. So I know Verdum's shown up at that gym and he trains with them a lot. So that's probably where like the updated game comes from too, of just mm -hmm. being a lot more active on the bottom. Cause yeah. like, I don't know if you keep up with like competition jujitsu, it's just the stuff the weird open guards they're doing nowadays is just so crazy. I mean, I, I don't follow competition jujitsu, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that's part of the reason newer fighters nowadays just have a lot more active bottom game. Yeah. Because well... they have that competition background. I mean, you see it too, even in the striking, people who've done like Taekwondo and competition Taekwondo, they're throwing like crazy kicks here and there. Like Anthony Pettis, yeah. he, he has a Taekwondo background and he's just flying all around the ring or the cage. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, as far as Nogueira and Verdum, I kind of thought about that as far as the differences in their game or why that may have happened. By 2010, Nogueira had already had about 40 fights. And, yeah. you know, he took some beatings in some of those fights. While for Verdum, he had only been fighting for about eight years because he started in 2002 and he had about 20 fights. So could it be that Verdum grew up, for lack of a better term, more in the MMA landscape of jiu-jitsu than Nogueira did? Because Nogueira debuted in 1999. I don't know, man. I don't. I don't even think that really makes a difference. You don't think so? I don't know, man. Just because that's so. What's the biggest difference from 1999 to like the early 2000s? No. Maybe, maybe because like I was a little kid then, and right now watching these videos, it all seems so antiquated, like the Whoa. fighting. It's not so much that 1999 and 2002 were so different. It's just by 2010, Nogueira already had a lot of wear and tear on his body. So I'm not really sure how much he could adapt his jujitsu game. And his career kind of took a little bit of a 
a little bit of a dip at that point. While for Verdum, he was still he he could he could keep up with the changing times, I guess is what I'm saying. But it, I don't know, man, because they're both the same age. Mm-hmm. They both kind of started like a three year difference. I don't think is that that big of a difference. Uh huh. And they know. both kind of got big in pride. You know, it, it's like they have such a similar starting point. I want to say. Yeah. And they're stylistically, not they're, they're both not separated by all that much, basically. Yeah, that's that's what. I'm, so it's like it's interesting how I I feel like it it comes down to like jujitsu style. Mm-hmm. So yeah, probably Nogueira has a more old school style, and Verdum probably started out with a more old school style. But yeah, I think he was still well. He was still competing in jujitsu. Oh, yeah, yeah. Basically, what you're getting at is that it's not so much, oh, the later times, because they both started around the same time and they're similar age. It's just, for whatever reason, Verdum was able to adapt his jujitsu. Yeah, and I think, it, like I said, it comes from the competition, because, yeah, he was an Abu Dhabi champ in 2007 and 2009. Yeah. So, I mean, for people who don't know, Abu Dhabi or ADCC is like, think, think it's like the world championship of grappling. You know, it's yeah. like they don't care if you do jujitsu, judo, or wrestling or whatever. You just go in there, you have like 10 minutes to submit someone, or you win by points. It's intense. Yeah. When I'm looking at Nogueira on his profile, the uh-huh. latest one is from 1999. Yeah, so not to say it's like I mean it's it's an older style of jujitsu, whereas mm-hmm. by the late 2000s, you have people doing like a lot of open guard stuff. As far as jujitsu practitioners, something that I thought about was the fact that, and I guess we kind of touched on this last week, is that. In the beginning, jujitsu practitioners were up against other jujitsu practitioners, so they didn't apply the type of pressure that wrestlers do. Or, I mean, they were up against people, they were either jujitsu practitioners or there were people with no jujitsu background at all. So they couldn't apply as much pressure as, say, wrestlers could. I, I think they could. It's just they had no familiarity with submissions, you know? Mm-hmm. There's all these Gracie challenge videos of them fighting wrestlers, and the wrestlers would just pin them down because that's what a wrestler does. Yeah. And then it's like, well, what do you what do you do after that? Oh, I see. Okay. So I think that's why Because there's no pinning as right. in jujitsu. Like you keep going after that. Yeah, okay. So you feel like maybe that's what caused some of the confusion and why people on the bottom didn't face as much pressure from the top fighter? I think so. Because, I mean, a lot of the wrestlers back then were mainly ground and pound people, if I'm not mistaken. Like Mark Coleman, ground and pound. Kevin Randleman, we talked about him. I think he was mainly ground and pound. Yeah. Randy Couture was a ground and pounder. 
Tito Ortiz, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah, all of those people. Randall yeah. Coleman. And then I think, like, you move to nowadays, I'm trying to think of a wrestler who's just good at submissions on top. Habib? Yeah, Khabib is one. But then he also comes from that, okay, just to go back to Fedor yeah, in a yeah. way, I mean, we need even though we're not going to talk about it, we're going to talk about Khabib and Sambo. It's like, <laughs> I feel like Sambo is that blend of judo and wrestling. That's why people know how to submit on top. I don't know. That's just my opinion of that. It's like, they got the wrestling portion of it. They have the judo portion of it. And judo also has like the submission game in it. Something that was a takeaway for me is that there was a learning curve with jujitsu from both ends, from the people who knew about jujitsu, but also from the fighters or practitioners who had to learn about jujitsu. I guess with the people on top, they had to realize or had to figure out what they needed to do on top. And then once those fighters learned about it, the jujitsu practitioners realize, okay, as far as what we do on the bottom, we got to change with those times or we got to change to that style. Maybe. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's fair to say that and that we can agree on that. Yeah. It's just from last week's conversation, you really presented a perspective that I hadn't really thought about as far as fighters on the bottom may have had difficulty or weren't used to top pressure until later because those fighters caught up with the times and finally learned stuff so it kind of bewildered them for a little bit right yeah but you know what we need to talk about fedor because at this point everyone's gonna think that we're just talking about verdum and i know it it turned into a verdum episode (laughs) yeah yeah so as a little teaser we are gonna do an episode on nogara and verdum later but for right now, for the topic at hand, we'll just get back to talking about Fedor. I almost, I even almost said Fabricio just now. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, well, but... okay, back on Fedor. Yeah, yeah. You know how we were talking about last time how he got accidentally elbowed? Yeah. And then that's his first official loss. Yeah. And this time he got accidentally headbutted. And then they called it a no contest. You're talking about the second Noguera fight, right? I think the first Noguera fight. No, no, no. That was the second Noguera fight. I thought the first one was a no contest. That's why they had a rematch. No, no. The first one was in 2003 when Noguera and Fedor fought for the heavyweight belt. Fedor won Uh that. And we kind of talked about that last week as far as how monumental of a fight that was. Okay. Because of the incredible role Noguera was on the the things he was able to do and just how baffled the commentators and analysts were because it was an amazing feat basically and I actually saw that fight that first fight with Noguera and and Fedor I keep wanting to save her doom god damn it <laughs> it's like He's mentally no Fedor so uh <laughs> Man, we're talking about like the best heavyweight of all time, possibly. And you're thinking about Redbeam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but anyway, so I saw, I rewatched that fight towards the end of the first round. Emelianenko, he's putting, he's hitting Noguera a lot and landing a lot of shots. One of them in particular, they were in one of the corners of the ring. Fedor throws a punch and dude, 
it almost looks as though Nogueira's head bounces up like a basketball, you know? Uh-huh. And those were just hard shots that Emelianenko was landing. Nogueira took quite a beating in that fight, to be perfectly honest. I mean, top pressure, man. How are you going to clinch against someone who knows how to work a top position and transition and beat you down, you know? I mean, but at the time, I mean... Well, at the time, even then, I, I think, like, Fedor was probably one of the best ground and pounders ever, you know? Yeah, I mean, he was definitely... And I, I'd probably have to watch... That fight again? I'd probably have to watch a bunch more of other fights, I guess, yeah. of Mark Coleman, Randy Couture, Tito Ortiz, see how they ground and pound compared to Fedor. But I just... It, but the, the perspective of people at the time was that for Fedor to just do it from the guard, that was so dangerous early yeah. in the fight. Boss Rutan and Steven Quadros, they're commentating for that fight. They're talking about how it's not... It, this was early in the fight. They're saying that it's not wise for Fedor to stay in the guard, but he just stayed there the whole time, and he won. I also think ground and pound has also changed. Partial about what we were talking about. Uh-huh. People just learning new positions and transitioning. But I feel like there's that sentiment back in the day where it's like, oh, ground and pound's easy. You just wrestle the dude down and punch him in the face. I mean, I don't know if it was because I was young, stupid, and naive thinking that, or, and now that I'm older and I actually understand how how the ground game kind of works, I'm just like, well, that's, that's really ignorant of you to think that, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it requires skill in order to maintain that top position and put pressure and everything. So that's why I'm I'm saying I need to look back on like other fighters of that era who are also ground and pounders, mm-hmm. you know, just to see was there a difference in how they positioned themselves or how they were hitting people when they're on top on the you know yeah well I mean it's like what made him what made Fedor so much more successful it's not like. Mark Coleman was not strong or not yeah. a good wrestler. Although, He's a great wrestler. Yeah, although he got on top. Although what we kind of talked about in the Randleman episode, maybe their weak link was just the submission game. Some of some of, if not a lot of their losses were due to submission. So I don't know if it Mark Coleman just fell to Fedor because he didn't have good sub defense. Well, know. yeah, I mean, but so you're saying like if Mark Coleman was in the same position of beating down Nogueira in his guard, he would have gotten submitted? What I'm saying is that, I, I guess I was thinking from the perspective, because you said, oh, how come, you know, Mark Coleman's a big, strong guy, but as far as his fight, when he was on top of Fedor, Fedor was able to get the arm bar, and I was just saying that maybe that's just due to the fact that Mark Coleman, he he wasn't the best jujitsu practitioner or he, right. he only had a limited knowledge in that. I mean, I don't know exactly. And that kind of ties in with your question as far as, Oh, why is Fedor so skilled? Well, at least in that Mark Coleman instance, that's my theory for how Fedor was so good or was able to sub him. Yeah. I mean, that's it makes, true. makes sense to me just because if someone knows what 
to look for yeah. in like a submission, you can easily avoid it. What's the best way to escape a triangle choke? Just don't get caught in one, you know? <laughs> it's it's kind of like that. Either best that way out of an arm bar is to not even be in an arm bar. Although I would say that with a triangle, if you can squeeze one of your hands or arms in with the other one, then that'll help you out. I mean, yeah, but then you add the element of someone punching you in the face. It's it's kind of like, just don't even be there. Well, I found out, you know, as far as how Emelianenko was able to overwhelm Noguera in their first fight, there was actually a passage that I came across in the book. I just want to pull it up real quick. Mm-hmm. Noguera was as good as he had ever been. This is talking about his rematch at the end of 2004, their third fight. Before the first fight, he was actually in bad physical shape. On the way to the arena, he had to sit down on a Tokyo street corner because his back was bothering him badly, but he fought anyway. What else could he do? At the end of 2004, he was physically prepared and mentally focused. So... I don't know. Maybe Noguera had some lingering injuries going into that first fight. So I, I guess to kind of add on to what I was mentioning earlier, as far as correcting my statement of, oh, it wasn't, it's not as though Noguera definitely had a lack of motivation. It just, he may have had that, but based on what I read to you, that was something that was impacting him. It's just, he wasn't really in the best physical shape. It seems going into the first Fedor fight it seems like he may have dealt with some nagging injuries and that may have impacted his performance or why Fedor was able to dominate him. Right. Yeah. So I just, you yeah. know, just saying that I was adding on to the correction I made earlier today or earlier in the episode. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. I mean, regardless, I mean, to try to get people to understand Fedor beating Noguera in 2003, I guess for MMA fans who are listening, that was equivalent to Verdum beating Emelianenko as far as the significance of it and how you just have this guy overthrowing this very dominant fighter in Noguera. Yeah, I mean, at the time, he was probably like the best grappler in the mainstream MMA scene. Oh, I yeah, mean, for sure. He was just submitting everybody. I don't even think... What, almost all his fights ended in submissions. Let's find out. Let's see how many of his... I'm trying to... Let me pull it up, yeah. Let's see how many of Because I just... I remember he submitted Crow Cop. But that was after the first Noguera fight. Was that... Man, I mean, sorry, timeline. That was, sorry, sorry. That was after the first Fedor fight. My timeline for all this is so... Yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all good. I mean, I figure that's where I can come in is, you know, just giving you the proper time frames. Let me just see as, as far as Fedor's, not Fedor, goddamn, I'm mixing up all the names today. So <laughs> Fedor, sorry, I said Fedor again. Noguera, he had one, two, three, four. He had 14 submission wins going into that first Fedor fight. That's pretty good. And there was, during that time frame, he had... He only had, like, what, 20 fights or so? Yeah, maybe? something like that. And then one knockout. I mean, the point is, is that he was very skilled in jiu-jitsu. And Noguera just... Or not Noguera. 
Fedor came in and just said, F that. I'm taking the Pride heavyweight belt. And that's what he did. And fun fact for people, Fedor was the second and last Pride heavyweight champion in company history. Second and last? Well, yeah, because Fedor held on to the title until Pride ended. What, what are you confused? I'm trying to think. I was like, I thought they had more Grand Prix, but I think you're right. I'm well, yeah, they up. had Grand Prix, but as far as being the actual heavyweight champion, oh, then yeah, it was Fedor, and they created an interim title later that year between Nogera and Mirko Krokop to see who would be the Pride interim heavyweight champion to set up a later fight with the actual pride heavyweight champion that being fedor at that time hmm. i mean as far as as far as fedor's 2003 he fights nogera he wins the heavyweight title and then he fights this one fighter and i'm sorry for the pronunciation but Ejid, Ejidius Valavicious. oh my god <laughs> I don't, I don't know, man. He, he had a fight about a month after the Noguera fight, won that, and then he fought Fujita, which we kind of touched upon that in the last episode, in that Fujita actually hit Fedor with a punch, and that actually made him... I mean, he was close to being knocked out. I don't know if you've ever seen that fight, Edmund. Have you? I don't think so, man. Like I said... Fedor was like Russian Superman to me. Well, yeah, I mean that was just one of those occasions or one of those examples where he was able to he was able to bounce back and just handle any precarious situation in order to, you know, come back from that. But I mean, how crazy would it have been if Fujita was the guy to beat Fedor at the time? I mean, I, mean sort of, I don't of... think that would have been if that did happen somehow. I don't think Fedor would be the Fedor we know today. Yeah, I mean, probably. I guess, I guess it's fair to say that. Yeah. It just, it was just kind of, I mean, at the very least, it would be one of those kind of Matt Sarah-esque victories of here's this total, complete underdog beating who's supposed to be one of the best. And especially given the context of that time because he he took the helm of best heavyweight in pride or in all of mma when he took on nogera and then a few months later wait you lose to this japanese pro wrestler right crazy things like that happen in mma though as you know yeah i mean it kind of you know this kind of brings up an interesting thought that i've thought about when looking at Fedor's record or skills, there are a few fighters that come to mind as far as today's MMA that are compar- comparable to Fedor. Because, you know, last week... I was Here's... Like, okay, finish your thought. Finish your thought. No, 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 There's a point you. I want... No, finish your thought first. Okay, well... Because la- last time we did an episode, I was saying that Fedor seemed to be more well-rounded in ways that GSP or Anderson Silva weren't. So the three fighters that I think about, and I kind of like this because I feel, I feel as though there's going to be a little bit of a debate from, out of this, but the three fighters that I think about 
as far as relating it to Fedor, are John Jones, just because he's sort of in the similar position that Fedor was in his win streak, in that he only has one loss, but it was due to a DQ or due, due to some BS finish, or it's not a legit loss. Mm-hmm. So John Jones, because of that one loss, Demetrius Johnson, because I'm sure you and I can both agree that Demetrius Johnson is very well-rounded. Oh, yeah. He's skilled in all facets of the game. I know he has three losses, and he has more losses than the two fighters in this category, the third one I'm going to get to in a second. But he's very skilled, and he can do anything. Right. There's that. And then I also think of Habib because he's undefeated. Mm-hmm. And basically, Fedor was virtually undefeated with the exception of that Kosaka loss. So I guess the way I'm putting it is that we're seeing a level of skill and a winning streak that we've only seen in John Jones, Demetrius Johnson, and Habib. And I guess to an extent, and this is no disrespect to them, Anderson Silva and GSP. Okay. Yeah, so what I'm curious, what's your uh what's your my thing is not to take anything away from Fedor, but maybe the reason he was so dominant in his heyday, not that he's not skilled, but the level of competition wasn't as strong. There's some you know what. There's Here's the thing, like every every Pride fighter that transitioned to the UFC after Pride got bought out, they were struggling for a little bit mm-hmm. before I feel like they finally caught up. You look at Overeem, he was just getting losses handed to him left and right. Well, that might have been due to another reason. I mean, what, the drug testing being yeah. more strict? Yeah. That could be another reason. I mean, why hasn't Fedor fought in the States and when he finally, I mean, I guess affliction. But well, he fought know. in affliction, strike. But he had two, he had two fights in affliction. I, I don't know. See, this is this is where it kind of gets hairy with with the level of competition argument. Yeah. Just because I mean his first couple fights in the States, he won. Yeah. But then afterwards he had like a loose streak. Which now that I'm looking at, it, isn't even that bad. He lost three fights in a row. I mean, that's bad, but it's not that bad. Well, it was, it was, it's not bad in the sense that it's an odd thing for fighters to lose three fights in a row. It was just bad for him because he was right. on such an incredible win streak. And this right. is around the time where, in a sense, the competition kind of stepped up, or right. he's losing to guys who aren't in the UFC. So that just makes Fedor look bad. I mean, the other thing, too, he was never in the UFC, so it's hard to gauge how, I want to say how tough his opponents are, just because, I mean, just because you left the UFC doesn't mean you're a bad fighter. Yeah, absolutely. Usually it's payment issues, contract issues, or whatever, but it's just so... Edmund, if it Mm -hmm. helps, I agree with you that there is some truth to and there is some validity in the criticism of the level of competition that Fedor faced 
because right. he did fight Noguera, Crow Cop, Coleman, and Pride. But then there was also, for instance, his fight with Fujita or Gary Good Goodridge, which in some people's regard, or just based on this Luke Thomas video that I saw, he was saying that Fedor's fight with Gary Goodridge should have never happened. And then <laughs> Goodridge, he was a little bit on a he was a little bit on the on the downturn at that time. Or he was yeah. Of- well, here's the thing too. In Japan, they, I feel like, especially then at the time, they made fights more for the show or the spectacle. Yeah. Than well, they, the they actual. Kind of, not well, the they, merit. They, I don't know. What, what's a good word for it? Well, because yeah. I know, like at that time, Dana White. Dana White was pushing hard that. MMA is not boxing. Yeah. It's not pro wrestling. We're going to have the best fighters fight with the best. So you're always going to see the best of the best fighters pushing each other. Which ironically and that, and now... That kind of, and that kind of enhanced once Pride folded. Right, right. It was like, finally, we get to see Rampage. We get to see Crow Cop fight the American fighters. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, some would say his records, inf- but then it's like some would say like his records inflated, Fedor's records inflated because he's fighting a lower. He's a bigger shark in a small pond. Or just the fact that he'll have fights come up like the Gary Goodridge one. Right. Or after that, he fought another Japanese pro wrestler in Yuji Nagata. Which or like Bob, Sa- like I love Bob Sapp. Bob Sapp. He never fought Bob Sapp. What? Nope. nope, never. I need to look this up. I'm. I speak the truth. Fedor and Bob Sapp never. Fought I don't doubt you, <laughs> but I just feel like Bob Sapp's the guy that you just fight eventually if you're in Japan. <laughs> well, it was the case with Nogera and Krokop, two out of the big three heavyweights in Pride. Yeah, because because oh, yeah, Krokop he fought Bob Sapp in. In kickboxing, Noguera right. bottom in MMA, but Fedor right. never collided. Interesting. Well, I will say that there is a little bit of an inflation there, there because I think if we're being objective about Fedor's career, he did fight some people that were just not on his level or just they were not skilled fighters. But at the same time, he also did fight skilled fighters for that time period, whether it was right. skilled. Herring, Krokop, Randleman, all those people. It's it's kind of a little bit of a mixture of both. I sort of feel like that criticism of Fedor not fighting top-level fighters really increased after his fight with Krokop in 2005. That's when I feel as though people were really getting on him as far as not fighting top-level competition or didn't sign really? for the UFC, you know, people were... Thinking- I Yeah, I started hearing that after Pride folded. He yeah. refused to sign to the UFC. And then he had his... That's when people were like, oh, Fedor is just running because he can't yeah. be Randy Couture, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I and mean, then... That's, that's, go ahead. And then I think it further got driven home when he lost three fights in a row in mm-hmm. the US. And then... He didn't come back to fight in the U.S. again until Bellator, which was like years later. Yeah. So by then, everyone's old. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah. uh, I don't really know what Fedor's motivation for coming out of retirement at that point was. 
I think money. You think so? I mean, he's still a name to us old school fans. Dude, if I saw him, I wouldn't be like, hey, you fought shit. When No, I'd be like, holy crap, it's Fedor. Let me hmm. shake your hand, take a picture, you know? Hmm. Interesting. He still has his fans out there. And let's get into this, too. Russia's probably pushing him as, like, a propaganda tool. I mean, I think in the past he was. Even now, I feel, I mean, he's still, in, he's, he's like the closest thing Russia has to an Ivan Drago. Mm, yeah. Someone who's like a public figure in a fighting sport, who's like also beaten the best. Mm-hmm. I feel like Rocky, his Rocky would have been Randy Couture, but that's yes. a big what a fight yes. that yes. never yes. happened and never will happen, unfortunately. You know, I have this DVD from from HDNet fights when Fedor fought Hongman Choi, uh-huh. and they're talking to the the ringside interviewer, and he's talking about a discussion that he had with Fedor Randy Couture, and he was in he was saying that, and this was back in 2007. Keep in mind, so he says something along the lines of, "It's not a matter of if the fight will happen, but when." And yeah. when that half, when he said that, I just literally, it, it was like I had the single tear come down because 12 years later, that fight never happened. It's like, why didn't that ever happen? That, that could have been the biggest MMA fight of all time. Yeah, you want to know. And this, this would have been like just before the whole hype in boxing with Mayweather Pacquiao too. Yeah, well, it, it, it's interesting, or I find it, I'm kind of glad that you said that, because as far as the significance of the fight, that was a fight that I was really into. And to kind of show you how much I was into it, I remember I made my own quasi tale of the tape where I have, I had this white sheet of paper where I was creating all these different facts. Or I was just writing down all this information as far as height, reach their age the record key wins key losses although for Fedor at the time for key losses I wrote none because I don't consider that first I didn't consider that first Kosaka fight to be a significant loss and talking about did I say that I also put down their strengths and weaknesses yeah yeah that was a fight that I really wanted to see and I think the reason why that fight was so coveted was because that was gonna be a Rocky versus Ivan Drago oh, for, yeah. M- for MMA. That was yeah. going to be our version of it. Who do you think would have won? Oh, man. You know what? That, that kind of brings up an interesting topic because I know at the time, because I was such a big Randy Couture fan, I, th- I was leaning towards Randy. Not really? Because, yeah, not not just because I'm a fan of Randy Couture, but because I may have thought this at the time, but I can't be 100% certain. I may have thought at the time that wrestling was one of Fedor's weaknesses. And I'm not sure if you, I'm not sure if you remember this, but I was talking about how I was going to I I talked about last time how wrestling may have been a weak point for Fedor Emelianenko. 
Right. Yeah, you mentioned that. The reason why I felt wrestling was a weak point in Fedor was because if you looked at his fights against Mark Coleman, Mark Coleman in their first fight was able to take that take him down. I think he did in the second one, but I haven't seen that fight in a long time, so I can't say for certain. You had Kevin Randleman who slammed who slammed him nearly through that mat. And then he fought Matt Lindland in 2007. Do you remember they tried to push the IFL, the International yep. Fight League and yep. all that? Yeah, dude, dude, real quick before you get into that, we need to do a separate episode on all those MMA organizations that oh, came out dude. during that time. That of is course. an episode in and of itself, yeah. dude. Shit. All right, carry on, carry on. I mean, he's a great dude. Isn't he like a politician or something now? I know he, he ran for some offices. I don't know his political win-loss. I think record. he's like in Oregon or something. Yeah. But, but I don't know as far as if he actually has it or has had it. Matt Lindland apparently wasn't even supposed to be the original opponent for Fedor for that Bodog fight event. Yeah, I mean, no, but shit happens. Who is he supposed know, to fight? Apparently, Bodog fight made an offer to Randy Couture. But he turned that down to go fight in the UFC. I mean, and I'm that's a hard choice. That. That's a hard choice, man. And I'm just thinking, you couldn't fight Fedor first and then go to the UFC. I don't know. I, it just Probably Dana White pressured him, you know? Dude, years, years after the fact, when I heard about that, I just thought to myself, ah, like, oh my God, man, really? We could have gotten Fedor and Randy, that ultimate dream fight that never happened, could have actually happened. Money talks, man. Plus, let me see. Well, Bodog Here's the thing fight. about Randy Couture, man. He's just fought and lost and come back so many times. Mm-hmm. And he kept jumping between heavyweight and light heavyweight. I don't even know, like... All his, I'm just like, oh, it's a Randy Couture fight, but I have no clue if that was like old Randy. Well, it's always old man Randy, but it's like, Hmm. I don't know if that's like a comeback or like, you know what I mean? Just a special attraction one-time thing, right? The dudes fought almost everybody and lost to everybody, but at the same time, he's come back and won against everybody again. Yeah. His career just... It's like a jumbled mess in my mind. So what exactly, what point are you trying to get across? I'm just like, what is his motivation at that time to go back to the UFC? I, I don't, I can't imagine it just be money. No, no, I don't think it was money. I think it was just, he was getting a little bit of that. You know what, actually, hang on a second. I can't imagine who we he could fight. Book. Let me look it up. We got, hold on, hold on. We got this book here. And there's okay. actually a chapter that talks about Randy Couture's return. Okay. Because my whole thing is like, the dude has fought everyone and beat them and lost to them at the same time. Yeah. Who else was there at 2000, like 2007? 2007 or 2006, whenever that was. Yeah, well, he, he announced... Who was there to fight? 
in the UFC that he needed to fight to like overfade it. You know what I mean? Well, here, let's refer to total MMA. So there's actually a chapter that says the return of Captain America. <laughs> it, it began like many questionable decisions with just a little too much to drink. Randy Couture was hanging out with friends at a sushi bar and downed a few sakis. He'd been retired since the third Chuck Liddell fight, and retirement was turning out to be more work than fighting ever was. Between the announcing, acting, business ventures, and charitable work, Couture was, Couture was run ragged. His friends that night were telling him, you could beat the champ. So it kind of started with that. Let's see. Couture was in a playful mood and decided to show off just a bit. He whipped out his phone and left UFC president Dana White a text message challenging Sil uh, Sylvia. He thought White would get back. Or sorry. He thought White would get a kick out of it and get back to him later. Instead, the return call was almost instantaneous. It turned out that the promotion was actively searching for someone with the skills and box office power to battle the giant champion. The comeback was on. So for me, I feel like it may have been a combination of Randy getting that competitive spirit and that competitive edge back combined with just he wasn't really happy with retirement and wanted to do something a little bit more for a little bit yeah longer. but then it's like okay Tim Sylvia UFC champ right he was the champ at the time yeah I don't know man I guess you could did they fight before then? No, that, that was the only time they ever fought. Real Okay, okay. Then I can kind of see the appeal of that. Or here's a little bit of a theory that I have. Or okay. I, I have no idea if this was actually the fact, but I'll hypothesize or kind of throw out there. Randy decides to come out of retirement because he wants to fight again. And... If that story about Bodog fight is true and that Randy was supposed to fight Fedor and not Matt Lindland, then maybe that was the fight that he was coming he was coming back for. But then at some point the UFC were talking to Randy and they were able to convince Randy come to the UFC instead. And this was shortly before the UFC bought Pride. So maybe in Dana White's mind he was thinking we're we'll get Fedor anyway very shortly and you can just fight him there i don't for know for a belt yeah for an actual belt or the unification between ufc and pride he you know or i don't even know if they thought the unification bout because randy wasn't champion at that point but maybe that was something that people from the ufc were telling randy is hey you can fight Fedor once we get him in because we're buying pride and you know It'll be accessible then. I don't know if that's actually a story. It's just something that I kind of thought about right now. Is maybe I mean, I could see that happening. Mm -hmm. because like, why waste your one shot at fighting probably one of the best heavyweights of your era and not get a belt for it? Plus, I, I wonder if maybe because at that point, Crow Cop went to the UFC... And I wonder if Randy possibly 
saw a fight with Crow Cop in the future. So that's another reason why he went to the UFC. Because had Crow Cop beaten Gonzaga in April of 2007, it would have been Couture and Crow Cop. Yeah. Oh, man. That was a, that was a knockout. The Gonzaga that, yep, that, knocking that, out Crow Cop. That fight, Crow Cop and Randy, that's on, my, that's on my list of fights that never happened. That's actually in that list of mine. Okay. Well, then what made you think Randy Couture, besides the rest? I mean. Well, I, I was going to get into that. To okay. Kind of, to kind of bring this back, because we kind of sidetracked once we talked about Matt Linland. Right. Matt sorry. Linland, no, no, it's all good. <laughs> Matt Linland also has a wrestling background. Right. And in that fight, Matt tried to take Fedor down. And there's some controversy with that fight because when he went in for that takedown attempt, Fedor was holding on to the ropes. Right, so, I remember that. Yeah, so I can't help but wonder if maybe that played a part in it. I don't know if it's, you know, the main reason why Fedor won, but it'd be hard-pressed to think that wasn't a factor because had Fedor not held on to the ropes, he would have gone down. And that's Matt Lindland. You know, Matt Lindland is skilled. But then didn't he, like, beat him? By like submission? Yeah, he did. So if I remember it correctly, Matt tries to go for the takedown. Fedor holds onto the rope. And then eventually Fedor is able to reverse things and he gets the takedown. I don't know if like they kind of break away for a little bit or they move away from the ropes a little bit. And then Fedor was able to do like a judo toss on him. Right. I got to rewatch that. Yeah. I mean, that's what ended up happening. So that's why you think Couture would have won. Well, not just that, but as far as weaknesses for Fedor in that little chart that I made, another thing that I pointed out was that Fedor cuts easily in his fights. And <laughs> that was kind of a thing that Randy could do or capitalize on is mm. creating enough of a, like hitting his opponent enough to cause a cut and with Fedor, he just—it just seemed—it just seemed as though he cut so easily because he got a cut against Kosaka. He got a cut in that second Nogera fight, which caused a no contest. So I just wonder if it would have been. But that's only two cuts. He also got cut in the Crow Cop fight. Yeah, but it didn't stop it. Well, no, but he got cut. And. I mean, I just, I just feel, I just feel as though if Randy was able to land a shot that cut Fedor, and based on what Randy did in the fight with Gabriel Gonzaga, he would have been able to capitalize on that. I feel like he could have taken advantage of that and really put the hurt on Fedor. I could see that. I mean, I will say, like, Randy Couture surprises me just because i always see him as like an old man and then he beats people where i'm like what yeah like you're an old dude how'd you like beat chuck liddell and then lose to him two more times but (laughs) i mean well it seemed the kind of well by then he was like i think the weight cut was a problem for him too just because that was those are light heavyweights yeah, and also Chuck Liddell was on a tear at that point. And oh, yeah. He really found his groove. Yeah. I mean, Chuck Liddell in his prime 
had dynamite in his hands. Yeah. I feel as though that's a common saying or cliche to say, but dude. Well, he was knocking people out left yeah, and right. Every, it, during that win streak that he had, none of those fights went to a decision. He lost the Rampage fight. And then he went on his winning streak after that. Yeah, they were all finishes. Well, okay, let's see. Let me pull up Randy Couture's record. I mean, the kind of vibe that I'm getting out of this is that you feel like Fedor would have won. Yeah, I I definitely feel like Fedor would have won. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, I just brought up the point that he may have fought lesser competition. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, at the time, you know, I'm saying at the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel I, like Fedor would have won. Too. He beat. You know what sold it for me was like how Randy Couture lost to Noguera, but Fedor didn't. And I know a lot of that has wait, to do with. Wait, I don't understand. What do you mean? Couture lost to Noguera. Yeah, but that was in 2009. I know, I know, but it's like that's how my mind worked at the time. It didn't care about style or anything. It was like, oh. well, if Fedor beat Noguera. And, and Nogueira beat Kator, oh, obviously. I see, I see. Well, see, here's the funny thing about that. Because at the time, if we're going by that logic, and I really... It's very flawed logic, well, by yeah, the way. But you know? here's an example of it. Before Quentin Jackson beat Vanderlei Silva in the third fight, the triangle between Chuck Liddell, Vanderlei Silva, and Quentin Jackson <laughs> was always the ultimate example of how to disprove that theory that you had. Because uh -huh. Chuck Liddell lost to Quentin Jackson twice. Right. Vanderlei right. Silva beat Quentin Jackson twice, but Vanderlei Silva lost to Chuck Liddell. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, it's the whole rock, paper, scissors thing, <laughs> even though not really. But I mean, I mean, actually, that could kind of apply. Well, if we were going by the logic, then I don't even know what to... I mean, if we were going by that logic of Chuck Liddell beating Vanderlei Silva, then Chuck Liddell right. should have beaten Quentin Jackson. But that's not that's I not know, the case. I know. It's very flawed logic. But I mean, what? I was like barely 18. So yeah. what did I know, man? I mean, all I knew is that I really wanted to see that fight with Randy Couture and, and Fedor Emelianenko. I mean, that just really appealed to me just because it really Well, it was the it was the fight for yeah. mma it was basically our rocky with you know drago and rocky and it was also had they signed fedor it would have been to unify the the pride and ufc titles and you know it's like they're both perfect examples of rocky and drag you know mm -hmm. randy couture is just this dude who just loses then comes back and wins yeah. like rocky like yeah. he can take a beating and he's got so much heart. Mm -hmm. And then Fedor is like this Russian Superman, you know, it's like, it's yeah, man, that, that fight, if it did happen, would have made so much money. I know. Right. And it, and I think what would make it competitive is that they both have their strengths and also they were similar sized. So, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, aside from age, it was going to be as, as equal as you could get. Yeah, man. I mean, it's going to be the greatest what-ifs of 
MMA. Yeah, well, because it was, I mean, that's on my top 10 as far as top fights in MMA that never happened. That's in there because I think it had the recipe to be a good fight, but if nothing else, it was going to be a monumental moment because you had the heavyweight champion of the UFC at the time versus the pride heavyweight champion, the last pride heavyweight champion. And this is a dream fight that really started picking up steam once Randy won the heavyweight belt. And yeah. And also like Fedor was still top of the list on many people's like pound for pound. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No doubt so about it. It was I mean, like pound for pound goat at the mm-hmm. time. For me, when I heard the acronym goat, uh-huh. the first time I heard it was in MMA and I didn't know if that was a common phrase in sports until it's getting there yeah now it is yeah but i want to talk a little bit about that whole thing in 2007 as far as the ufc trying to sign him it's just i guess they was kind of i was kind of curious when fedor fought noguera the second and third time were there any thoughts that you wanted to share about it me not really because i was still in that juvenile mindset it's like i i want to call it like anime logic where it's like well if you beat him before he'll beat him again oh because i didn't see no i didn't see nogara do a training montage or anything (laughs) (laughs) that was your logic back then yeah man i mean what can i say i was a young dumb kid yeah i mean it's uh, i don't know i'm just i'm just teasing you man no, I mean, so I didn't think much of it just because I was like, okay, the no contest headbutt. Mm-hmm. I was like, whatever. Yeah. The rematch, Fedor will win again because he's so dominant at the time. What's what's kind of interesting, though, is that it seemed as though Noguera was a little more active on his back in that second fight. He kind of wasn't ju- – he wasn't just laying down and – he was trying to go for submissions. And I think boss Rutin on commentary even commented on the fact that Noguera was doing better than he was in the first fight. But as far as would that led to, would that have led to a different result? We'll never know because very, very quickly into the fight, they collide heads. It's an accidental headbutt. Fedor gets a cut and it's a no contest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I I don't know. It's just, I wonder if, I guess one of the thoughts that I have between the second and third Noguera fight is, is it possible that Fedor picked up on the adjustments that Noguera was making in his game, his jiu-jitsu game, which led to the next fight where it was Fedor dominating the stand-up and being able to toss down Noguera? Maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. But I don't think he changed that much stylistically just to fight Noguera in the third fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, mean, I know a... that I know that Noguera worked a lot with the Cuban boxing team after right. the Fedor fight. So it, it seemed as though that was something that Noguera was going to utilize or at least try to utilize. But he, it just didn't matter in that third Fedor fight. Yeah, I mean, you can't. You can't cover your weaknesses like that in a matter of months or a year, you know? Mm. It's like, 
if someone's a much better striker than you. Which you think Fedor was a better striker than him? I mean, yeah, he definitely was. <laughs> of course he was, you know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just asking to get, you know, a definitive answer on that. Yeah, I'm just. I, I guess there was, I mean, here, here's something that I, I came across in the Total MMA book. In the, in the book, the guy says, if Noguera's game was improving, so too was the champion's. Noguera went to Cuba to train with the boxing team there. Amelianenko's time in Holland was spent with the best kickboxing instructors. His legendary calm and confidence only deepened. So I don't know if this is actually the case, but at least according to this book, Fedor went to train with the team in Holland, possibly. And I guess it's one of those instances where Noguera went to improve his stand-up skills, but at the same time... What? And Fedor did the same at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and Fedor did the same thing. It's, I don't know, it's one of those things where, oh, I'm going to go improve my boxing. I got new striking skills. And then he finds out Fedor, Fedor worked on his striking too. God damn it. I mean, yeah. I mean, I want to say Fedor is like a better striker out of the box already. Okay. So if they're both improving the same aspect of the game at the same time, obviously the dude who's slightly better at it or has done who has had more experience with it is going to get better than someone just trying, trying to cover his deficiencies. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, his dad was like a Russian boxer. Didn't you say? Yeah. He was an amateur boxer. Yeah. And then Sambo, there's a striking element to it. Mm -hmm. So I don't see why he wouldn't be. (laughs) I guess the two other noteworthy fights for Fedor after the last Noguera. Fight. And he was beating major striker. I mean, I'm trying to think, did he like beat them at their own game though? Which I don't think he did. Well, in Fedor's fight with Semi Shield, he won via decision. So I don't know. I And I've never seen the fight, so I don't know exactly how it went. I would probably see him taking, I don't know. It, it's just... He definitely beat Andre Arlovsky at his own oh, yeah. game, which, but that was after, and we, we touched on it. I mean, we've touched on it, so yeah. Which he has that aware. Sorry. No, no, no. I keep interrupting. I'm yeah. I, I, so I mean, Fedor does have that instinct in the pocket, or when he's under pressure, to land a solid counterpunch. And I, based on what you said last week, now I understand what you meant by making the analogy of if Connor and Floyd fought each other and Connor knocked out Floyd because you have a guy who who isn't as skilled in professional boxing knocking right. out a world-class boxer which in the context of Fedor and Andre Arlovsky Andre was really skilled with his boxing and really sharp with it but Fedor ended up ended up knocking him out despite that right so I, right. I, I, I don't think I quite caught on at first, but now I get the analogy as far as if Andre in that fight had the equivalent of four years boxing experience compared to Fedor's two years, but Fedor still knocked him out anyway. Yeah. The other, the other two fights Fedor had after the third Noguera fight was he fought Kosaka again in April of 2005 which apparently mm-hmm. 
I'm looking at his record. It happened on April 3rd, 2005, which was the same day as WrestleMania 21, which I was able to attend live. So that's always kind of a that's always kind of a special day. It's a fun fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, they were they were in LA that year, and we got tickets. We had a sweet box, and we went. Yes, like with like champagne and the no, snacks no. and stuff. Well, I mean, dude, I was thirteen. I'm not gonna have champagne. I don't know, man. Like, I <laughs> I hear like some people I know. They're like, oh yeah, I got a. I got a box for like the Laker game at the Staples Center and there's like fucking champagne and hors d'oeuvres all over the place. I'm like, I mean, dang. If I'm, I mean, it, once this pandemic is over and they're actually having games at the Staples Center again, if I manage to get a sweet box for the Laker game, you can bet I will have some type of alcoholic drink or I'll drink oh, something. Dude, that'd be so expensive. But Probably. anyways. <laughs> I, mean, but if, I mean, but if you just order a beer from the concession stand, well, yeah, I mean, the point is, like, you're roped off from the rest of the plebes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> the way that we even got the tickets was that my dad was an accountant, and uh -huh. one of his clients worked at the Staples Center, and he was in charge of some type of ticket sales or whatever, and we didn't have tickets to the show originally, but then when my dad was talking to his client, he was able to hook us up with some tickets and he was saying, Oh yeah, I can get you sweet box tickets. And, oh, that's sweet. Yeah. So uh, you can imagine I enjoyed that quite a bit. So anyway, he fights Kosaka on April 3rd, 2005, which I don't know from a, if, if I'm looking at that from a comedic point of view, it's almost as if Fedor, when he saw Kosaka across the ring and before they actually start fighting, Fedor is just like, you son of a bitch. I would have a perfect record if it wasn't, for you and then he i mean he kind of beat the shit out of kosaka in that fight <laughs> there was no controversy that time it was just all fedor i mean if you're avenging a loss i think you'd want to make a point yeah well i don't know if necessarily fedor fought angry i mean when i say all that stuff i'm saying it jokingly but fedor did put the hurt on Kosaka and he beat him up pretty bad and there were a couple moments where the, the the referee and the doctor stopped the fight to look at Kosaka's cut and at the end of the first round they called off the fight they they, mm -hmm. they ended it in between rounds mm -hmm. so it just kind of it's just funny because the commentators they were noting the irony in that Fedor was cut in their first fight and Kosaka was cut in this fight. And just the similarities there. I mean, not to say like Fedor fought angry, but I'm sure you wanted to make a point. Yeah. And obviously like, there was a the lot The only stain on your record is this guy. So it's like, you better just put smash it to him. rest. Yeah. You just smash him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he... I mean, I feel like that was a legacy sort of a, a way for Fedor to enforce his legacy because he beats Kosaka and it was definitive this time. He, it was clear that Fedor won and he was the better fighter and there was no controversy to that whatsoever. So right. that, that sort of cemented his legacy, which led to the Crow Cop fight, which, I mean, he dominated Crow Cop because in Pride... 
the top three heavyweights were Fedor, Nogueira, and Krokop. And that was, I guess, at that point, if Krokop hadn't beaten Fedor or if he didn't beat Fedor, they didn't know who they were going to match him up with because he ran through all the other contenders. So, yeah, it was a good performance by, by Fedor. Yeah, I mean... We're kind of jumping back and forth a lot on this timeline. Yeah, record, yeah. Well, I just sure. wanted I just kind of wanted to brush through that real quick before coming back to the whole 2007 time frame. Right. You know, I just kind of wanted to give a quick overview, and there's not really. I mean, is that is that kind of confusing you, or it's just kind of a little hard to keep track of? Well, for me, I'm just like after he beat Nogueira. Yeah. For like good, the third time, I <laughs> guess. <laughs> I mean, they made it a trilogy, so why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get. I, I just, I just like the verbiage that you use when you said, "Oh, for good." <laughs> I mean, that just kind of cemented him as like invincible or like an all-time great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like to me, I'm more interested on, like you said, is 2007 and after era, just because it was, it just felt like such a weird time. Because, yeah, he got the Affliction fights and then Affliction folded right after. Yeah. And I feel like Affliction was kind of made just so they could... I feel like Affliction just did that in order to piss off Dana White. <laughs> I mean, I from my understanding with the whole Affliction thing, it's just Affliction wanted to get into the fight business because I think that was at a time where a lot of people were trying to dip their toe in the MMA business and see right. if they could profit from it. I don't know if they had the explicit intention of trying to piss off Dana, but once Dana found out that Affliction was going to run its own show, that's when he kind of... That's when he went crazy and banned Affliction from everything? Yeah, yeah. hence which led to, you know, it kind of leads to Affliction banned. Right. Which, you know what? Hold on. I'm going to, I was going to say this for later, but since we're mentioning it, I guess I'll bring it up. Hang on one uh-huh. second. I got, I got another little, uh, I got another item from, from the past. Oh God. Isn't it an affliction shirt? Oh God. What did you find? I, I swear for a second, I thought I wasn't going to be able to find it. So back in 2008, I was looking at Brazilian jiu-jitsu gyms to try to find a place to train. And there was one that I went to that was nearby my house. And so at the time, that was when that was about a month before the Affliction show, or it might have been a couple of weeks before that. And they actually had these little postcards or whatever of the Affliction show. So I took one and I. Oh, kept wow. Yeah. That's cool. This is a blast from the past, man. Yeah, man. I have no idea. Damn. I don't. I have no idea what it says on the back. I, I haven't read this in years. I just knew that when we were going to do this episode, I was going to share this with you. It's kind of cool. Yeah. What's kind of funny is that it says special performance by Megadeth. I don't know if they actually performed at that show, but there probably was, there was the M1 plug on here that we that that you see on here, man. I'm I'm posting this on Instagram or on yeah. Instagram. laminate it man (laughs) maybe maybe i am gonna have to laminate it's funny i i I thought this was bigger back i thought this was a bigger postcard i didn't realize it was this small kind of kind of thought it was bigger than i remembered 
but I might be mistaking that with other MMA flyers that I have. So, Got it. Yeah, but in, in 2006... Here's a... F- sorry, go. Uh-huh. No, 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 go ahead. No, 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 finish. Uh, no, 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 because mine's going to be a little bit of a long thought. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Uh, okay, well, I mean, I was just going to talk about... Well, it's interesting because that 2006 2007 time frame that's kind of where we come in as far as starting to watch mma right and i mean well i started watching in 2006 when did what year did you start watching i want to say around 2006 as well okay so what at least for me when i started watching mma i was just mainly watching ufc because that's what i had access to and i didn't really hear about pride or kind of really get introduced to it until once it was bought out so this is kind of where you and i come in as far as the history of fedor because this is something that we actually experienced and that we actually remember and i feel like i have a little bit more of an attachment to this time frame of fedor's career because it was when i started watching and it was a significant point in Fedor's career as far as he's done with pride where is he gonna go I mean yeah of course especially like as a new fan you just Mm -hmm. discovered possibly one of the best fighters in the world yeah and then you hear he might come to the UFC yeah at a time where you're like you just learned how to bootleg pay-per-views or whatever (laughs) just to watch him yeah like that was definitely exciting for me too I mean I was trying to I was hoping he'd sign with the UFC or something just so like I could either a find some place to download it yeah or b find I mean, a friend who was into it too and just pay him and watch her at his house or something for me if that Fedor and Randy Couture fight happened that would probably be the one fight that I would be begging my parents to buy because you know i'm yeah I'm right 15 i don't i don't have a job or my own money so <laughs> i'd probably just be saying please can i can you just order this please i don't i don't know but it, it's it, i guess something that i wanted to cover was that fedor had his last fight in pride at on new year's eve 2006 and he signed a one-fight deal, or he signed a contract with Bodog Fight, had that fight with Matt Lindland. Let me just pull this up real quick. So the reason why, I guess apparently due to a poor pay-per-view buy rate and a public falling out between Calvin Ayer, who headed Bodog Fight, and Fedor's manager, Vadim Finkelstein, Fedor became a free agent again. And in a 2007 interview, he said... Pride is a show with a very high level of organization. In Bodog, I saw several faults. The show could be more interesting and more dazzling. Pride's organization is, of course, better. So, and then also in a Sherdog interview, Vadim was saying, I thought Bodog behaved very badly in regard to that event. They acted as though the whole organization of the event and everything surrounding it, the VIPs such as Jean-Claude Van Damme and Vladimir Putin, was because of them. In reality, I and my brother organized 90% of it. The logo for the event was also very unfortunate. Bodog fight was very prominent and they almost hit a small M1 logo in the corner and all the marketing materials. So it was almost almost impossible to see. 
so I'm not particularly pleasantly disposed towards Bodog fight at the moment. So I guess based on what I'm telling you there, there was some the Dean didn't really like how Bodog handled the promotion or just the marketing behind that. So they decided they didn't want to do business with I mean I could see that. I remember like I I barely found anything related to Bodog fight or that Fader fight. I don't think anyone at school kind of knew who Fedor was. Oh, like, no people way. knew who Chuck Liddell was. Yeah. They didn't know who the hell Fedor was or Bodog Fight or anything. It was, it was such a niche yeah. thing. Well, you had to look it up. Yeah. I mean, self, for me, you know? I had a couple friends in high school who were UFC fans, but they were not very familiar with stuff outside of the UFC or they weren't really familiar with MMA and it's what's what's kind of funny is that I remember for the longest time the measuring stick to see if you were an MMA fan or a UFC fan was pull up a picture of Fedor and ask that person do you know who this guy is <laughs> at least that's I mean that's that's how I saw it or at least that was my experience oh, at the time because if you were a real MMA fan you knew who <laughs> Fedor was yeah but I don't, I don't know, like, real fan. I don't know. Could well, you say all you right. would? All right. I mean. Right. Maybe not real, but if you were knowledgeable about MMA. Right. Like I, more than just the UFC, you would know who Fedor is. Exactly. Because it's like football, you know? Like, I'm not, I'm not big on the NFL or anything, but it's like, if people started naming these players that weren't the biggest names, yeah and expected i mean i don't know i mean I, bad example i guess because i'm not a big fan of the nfl yeah like i, mean, I don't really I get, watch football I get what you're saying i get what you're saying because i guess like a, an example would be in with baseball i can only name a handful of players or the really famous ones I know about but right. other than that I don't really know the names behind baseball I mean there was a time where for instance one of the only baseball players I knew of was Michael Jordan <laughs> does he even count I mean I, I guess I, I think that was I think that was the question I asked somebody and they just uh -huh. laughed. they just laughed at that question <laughs> but I yeah it, I, I feel like at the time like even though he's the best in the world he's still like a niche kind of thing it wasn't on TV at all. You never saw him on the news. Yeah. Because this is the time when, like, Ultimate Fighter was coming out, too. Yeah, I mean, they were they were around for a couple of years. Yeah. And, like, I remember uh, the UFC, because, you know, I was, like, my family wasn't super wealthy, so we didn't have cable. Oh, I see. They would have some, like, UFC fight rewinds on uh, – UPN. Oh, really? UPN? <laughs> yeah, of all channels, UPN. It's interesting. And I remember it'd be like Joe Rogan, just like which, which just for the record, uh, UPN is now my network TV. Right. I mean, it was a smaller network yeah, for, for sure, sure. You know. I I just I didn't know that they had a deal with that channel. I thought they were just only on Spike TV. I think it was like, I think it was during because that was also when like ifl just folded or something too yeah they had a deal with uh they had a deal with my network of my network so i think like the ufc tried to swoop in on that slot just mm -hmm. seeing there's like a vacuum yeah 
I'm not sure. I might be getting like the timeline mixed up. But I do know they did have like a rewind show on network TV on like a small network. Mm-hmm. So it was like with all that is like you never saw Fedor anywhere in the news, in TV, in media. And, uh, you know, this is like the it, it, the Internet in its infancy still, you know. Well, the internet as we know it today. Being- right. So it's like there weren't all these news articles everywhere about, you know, obscure Asian fighters. Right, right. If you wanted to know about it, you had to look for it. So. Yeah. I mean, but I don't know. I guess maybe for me, having the mentality that I did back then, it it was just kind of, I just sort of thought, okay, if you were a real MMA fan, yeah but then it's like it's like ufc i mean i'm not saying that's a good mentality to have right as as a teenager i know like during high school talking to like the few people who did actually know what mma was Mm -hmm. only a handful of those people so like maybe two or three even knew who fedor was if i even mentioned the name fedor yeah like that's how it'd be like if today you didn't know who Conor McGregor was or a big name yeah well I I think I think there you know there's some validity and there's it makes sense what you're saying because since the internet back 10 or 15 years ago wasn't what it is today the main source of distribution was still tv if you didn't have a tv deal then not as many people were going to see you so it makes sense why Fedor was mostly unknown was because most people didn't have access to him because he wasn't on TV. Which is like, going back to his statement, like, dude, it's totally unfair of Bodog fight to not promote him when he's a foreigner in a foreign country where nobody knows who he is. Did you say it's totally fair or unfair? It's unfair for Bodog fight to like put all the promotion pressure on him and his team. Well, also, based on what I've kind of been learning about Bodog Fight is that they spent a lot of money and... Well, you know... They they kind of... Bubble economy. Right. Well, I mean, just in the sense of they were spending... I mean, very simply, because I'm not... I'm not too privy to the business deals or the details about Bodog Fight, but it just seems like they spent more money than they were making. I mean, I could, this was like before the recession hit too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, while we're at it, let's talk about that too. What do you Cause, mean? Because, well, you know, a market recession, like the huge housing market crash and all that, that affected everything. Well, yeah, for sure. but some MMA organizations folded before that recession hit. IFL was done a few months before yeah. the recession. Bodog fight finished in early 2008. What was it? Yama pit fighting was never even heard of that. <laughs> I mean, it was another startup MMA group. I, I don't think they had more than a couple shows, to be honest. <laughs> but it, I, I mean, I guess it may have had some impact, but just generally speaking, maybe companies were trying to rush. I guess the success that they could have with MMA because they saw what UFC was doing, but with the UFC, they were around for over 10 years. So 
and, and so they it, they it's not like they were making money automatically they had been in business for right. a while and i feel i feel as though with companies such as ifl or bodog or elite xc they were trying to make a lot of money very quickly and that's yeah why they went out of i mean business very of course quickly. i mean it, it's i feel like the decline of mma in japan mm-hmm. was i mean pride folded yeah and then the recession hit and then you just never saw mma in japan being as strong again you know yeah like they had dream and all that but that was like those were like not as big as pride was i feel yeah, like not even close and you know part of it was like i think i read some article during that time like people in japan liked pro wrestling more well it, it's it, and... it's funny because a little fun fact is that that was around the time where the top wrestling company in japan new japan pro wrestling was slowly starting to come back to its level of prominence that it had before because during during the boom period for mma uh-huh. um, New Japan even almost went out of business, but then they rebounded and now they're a thriving business once again. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know anything about the pro wrestling scene, but that's what I read. Yeah. And I mean, I guess how all this relates to Fedor, I don't know, man. Like maybe the UFC was giving him a crappy deal. Yeah. that he didn't want to take and he had literally nowhere else to go well except if, for back home in russia with m1 well if you're asking if the thing that you're posing is a question or you're trying to figure out why fedor didn't sign with the ufc I mean, i'm trying to figure out why you well, know? i mean i can i looked into this and i can give you answers to that give me some answers man <laughs> okay. so let me let me take a look at this so the UFC made several attempts to sign Fedor, but they wouldn't agree to co-promote events with M1, so he signed with the latter. Also, it seems like the UFC's terms were harsh and Zufa wasn't willing to negotiate. Competing in Sambo tournaments also seemed like a big deal to Fedor, and that's basically the, the gist of it, is that whenever Fedor's team was presented with a UFC contract, it seemed as though the terms were very strict and it gave Fedor no rights whatsoever. So that's why he didn't, that's why he didn't sign with the UFC. I mean, it sounds like the UFC, man. (laughs) Well, I'm going to, I'm going to pull up the total MMA book once again. And where the devil is it? Nope. That's not it. Oh, okay. It's in the UFC buys pride chapter. Okay. So yeah, and, and and I remember Fedor did some interviews where he was just saying the the terms of that deal were just unacceptable based on what was written in it. So let me read this passage from Total MMA. It wasn't that he talking about Fedor. It wasn't that he was opposed to fighting in the UFC. Emelianenko had great respect for UFC champion Randy Couture and wanted a unification match. It was the UFC contract that Emelianenko didn't like. And then this is in quotes. The contract the UFC presented us with was simply impossible. Couldn't be signed. I couldn't leave. If I won, I had to fight eight times in two years. If I lost one fight, 
then the UFC had the right to rip up the contract. At the conclusion of the contract, if I am undefeated, then it automatically extends for an as yet unspecified period of time, though for the same compensation. Basically, I can't leave undefeated. I can't give interviews, appear in films, or do advertising. I don't have the right to do anything without the UFC's agreement. I could do nothing without the okay from the UFC. I didn't have the right to compete in combat sambo competition. It's my national sport. It's the Russian sport, which in his time our president competed in, and I no longer have the right to do so. There were many such clauses. The contract was 18 pages in length. That's a pretty long contract. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was written in such a way that I had absolutely no rights, while the UFC, at any moment, if something didn't suit them, tear up the agreement. Which, which now that I'm older, I really understand that. Because yeah. seeing all the problems and grievances that fighters have had with the UFC it's almost as though they're similar issues to what Fedor was having with that UFC contract and why he didn't sign with it. And could it be that Fedor was a little bit ahead of his time as far as not complying with the UFC's terms? I mean, I don't know about ahead of his time. There's been tons of fighters who left the UFC because, because of these ridiculous terms. Mm -hmm. But I mean, Sometimes I mean, they're but... put on them. But when Fedor declined a UFC offer, that was a big deal. And for me, being the young fan that I was, I thought to myself, why doesn't he just sign with the UFC? Or this is such a big opportunity. But now that I'm older and I realize the strife that fighters have, it makes sense why Fedor didn't sign with them. I mean, I remember now that you read that whole thing again, I remember reading something like that, that and I didn't fault him because I was already on the forums where people were shitting on Dana White already. So I already hated Dana White by that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dana White has been, we could do a whole episode on that guy too. But for as much as he's, <laughs> for as much as he's done for MMA, he's also like, hurt it. Stopped a lot of things. Yeah, he's also done some stuff to hurt it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of fighters leaving the UFC just unhappy, you know. Yeah, that's I, just like a, a testament to like their treatment there. Yeah, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say that. That's the thing with Dana; he's done a lot for MMA, but at the same time, and especially the last few years, I feel like his time has sort of passed. But in some ways, Dana has done a lot to hurt the MMA market. Just whether it's how he deals with people, his business practices, running down or eliminating the competition. It's just, it's a complicated thing because there's good things about Dana's legacy. And then there's also bad things about his legacy or what he's done for US MMA. But... I think one thing that we can't deny is that if it weren't for Dana and the Fertitta brothers, there may have not been a U.S. MMA scene. Yeah, I agree with that. And definitely in the early days, 
he was very instrumental in having the best fighters fight each other rather than creating like spectacle fights you oh, know yeah i i know we were kind of touching on this in the beginning of the episode and maybe it was just the fact that japan wasn't afraid to put on entertaining or yeah sort of show-esque fights while the u.s was more competitive and sports oriented especially given that time period from what we talked about as far as it seemed like the ufc cared more about their credibility as a sports league right it was trying to find legitimacy during a time when everybody was like hey this is just human cockfighting mm-hmm. blah 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 it's too brutal yeah so and the irony is like now that it's so mainstream Dana White's putting on these spectacle fights <laughs> well, some of that in order maybe, to keep some of the that audience maybe, entertained. Some of that may be due to the fact that Endeavor, as we've kind of touched on, Endeavor is an entertainment company, and I don't know, because they, because Endeavor spent a lot of money to buy the UFC, they need to make their money back and either yeah either they don't care but it's like dana white is okay well i was just gonna say either they don't care as much about maintaining the credibility of the sport or they don't know about it because these are just businessmen i don't think so man because it's dana white who hypes up certain fighters that don't deserve the hype while also playing favorites like why does conor mcgregor get to do whatever he wants when you know other fighters don't like jose aldo or oh man i I can't even think of names right now there was paul daly who sucker punched josh koscheck and he was basically banned for life yeah john jones keeps getting away with like another crime or fel- or whatever he's going through well can- you know conor mcgregor can act like a total douchebag 24 7 but you don't think any of that is due to the fact that endeavor wants to make money and they know that these guys are stars so it doesn't matter if they get in trouble Let's yeah just- but it comes it comes from dana white he's like he's the one putting out the statements mm-hmm. he's the one who's the face of the company oh he's the one promoting all this so you're saying that once they see that information they just assume that this is the guy that we need to get behind because dana white promotes them so much yeah i mean he's a fight promoter end of the day so that's his job and it's you know we're seeing weird like you know it's just not what it used to be you know the ufc at least for sure, for sure. Granted, there are still a lot more talented fighters there, but it's like, I feel like, especially in this day and age, it's got the best, but it's no longer like the premier or not the only premier fight league for MMA. Yeah, I mean, I guess at the very least, the UFC is not the be all end all of MMA. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you got a lot of competition in 1FC. Mm-hmm. They're getting big. They're getting good fights together. 
it seems as though, unlike 2007 or 2008, it's not as though fighters have to sign with the UFC, or it doesn't seem like it's that big of a magnet or that big of a center or mandatory for you to go to the UFC anymore, because there are some fighters who will decide to go to Bellator because it makes sense for them or they can earn more money or they can pursue other endeavors that the UFC doesn't let them do. Right, exactly. So, I mean, the games I, change. Yeah, but yeah. Kind of a long story short with Fedor, the reason why negotiations with the UFC fell, they didn't want to they didn't want to co-promote with M1 and that seemed to be a real sticking point for M1 and that was something that they weren't going to budge on. So that kind of leads into the topic of who's to blame here. M1 for pushing co-promoting so much or the UFC to not I blame drop it for the UFC. I blame Dana White. I blame Dana White. Man. As far as I blame the UFC. The ego go and let's just co-promote so that we can get this fight. Yeah, I think the situation was like all right. Fedor wants to fight Randy Couture. We have Randy Couture. So I'm going to try to get Fedor for the cheap, as cheap as I can, where I can control everything. So in the event he wins or loses, right, Yeah. they can control what happens after that, you know, so they get the most money out of it. Well, I think it's also... Because I think it was like the mentality, especially after Pride folded, it was like, he well, where the, the hell market. else are you going to go? It's like the US. Exactly. He had like a monopoly. Yeah. And when there aren't really, when you can't really exercise free agency, you can offer that person whatever you want and they have to take it because there's nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense. I guess part of it is also that whatever type of profits the UFC would have made off of Fedor, they didn't want to share that with any other organization. They didn't want to yeah. split their profits, which, uh, I don't know. For lack of a better term, it makes them look very money-hungry. I mean, they, they were... It's like you had a virtual... Monop like, during that time, I don't think... There was anything in the way of the UFC except for until Bellator came around. Yeah, a little bit. They had that time after Pride folded. I mean, Elite XC, Strike Force, they were so small. Yeah. I don't even think it was an issue. You know, yeah, the only thing they had going for them was women's MMA and the occasional weird spectacle fight you know they got fedor yeah strike force and was it elite xc or strike force that got kimbo uh, kimbo elite slice XC. elite xc elite xc kimbo never fought for strike force yeah so i mean you know you have one organization that had an internet meme <laughs> and then the other organization had women's mma and fedor i mean I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I'm kind of of the same opinion as you as far as the UFC could have put aside that control aspect of their mentality and just let this fight materialize between Fedor and 
whoever they wanted to match him up with and co-promote with K M one M one. Yeah. Yeah. With M one, because dude, I kind of think from the mindset of you control most of the market. Can't you just let this one thing slide? Yeah, but that's not how they're thinking, you know, because like they got to please people who have stock in the company. So it's like you always want to have good numbers. Yeah. So it's like if you can get Fedor for dirt cheap for next to nothing and then also make a ton of money off of him. Yeah. I think it was just a game of chicken that the UFC and Dana White played with Fedor and Fedor's team just didn't want to play. So they're just like, this is your contract? No, we're just walking from it all. Well, so from, like, M1's, from M1's pers- perspective, that would have been a good way for them to really grow their brand is if they get that type right. of publicity and kind of that publicity. No, that's not the word I'm looking for. Well, they, speaking they of the irony. Get, they would be able to get a lot irony. of eyes on them. The irony is I've never even seen a K1 event or an M1. M1 event. I saw one in August of 2009. Okay. Yeah. It was an MMA event. The main event was King Mo versus Mark Kerr. So Oh, okay. They, they, My they, thing is like I just Googled M1 recently and they're the ones who are like behind the whole night fighting thing, you know? I think that's something that they do, but M1 actually does have MMA fights. I mean, I feel okay. like... I, feel I like mean, I, yeah, I mean, they should. I Looking at the record, like, they got Fedor. He yeah. has a fight or two with them. I mean, I've just... I've never... I've never really heard from M1 after the whole UFC not signing thing, you know? Yeah, I guess... I guess this would be a good place to pick up the next episode because Mm -hmm. from there we can kind of talk about what exactly M1 Global is in this whole Fedor, Rebellion, Enco saga. And also Uh I kind of bring up a point as far as could the UFC have afforded to co-promote with M1 because of the amount of money the UFC was making or the amount of pay-per-view buys that they had. That's, That's something that we'll talk about later. Short answer, I want to say yes. <laughs> well, well, when I go into the numbers of it, you'll actually see, but I don't want to give too much away. We'll just give a little oh, we'll give a little preview for that. And I guess just to just to finish off, I brought up the notion that the UFC could have maybe afforded to co-promote with M1, but I don't know. My brother mm-hmm. kind of presented it from a business perspective as far as maybe they would have just had maybe they would have had a lot of costs and the UFC couldn't afford to lose that to another company. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know, man, when you're the only fight league in, t- I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's something that we can kind of debate or discuss more when we're kind of fresh because I think this is enough food for thought for listeners at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Bit. All right. I'll well, say that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just want to thank everyone for listening to this episode. If you like our podcast, you can follow us on Spotify, Instagram at unified rules podcast, SoundCloud, or if you really want to know more about us, Edmund, where can they email us? 
You can email us at unifiedrulespodcasts at gmail.com. Yeah, and then when we do our next episode, we're going to talk about the next phase of Fedor Emelianenko's career, starting with his signing with M1 Global and then going from there. Thank you, guys. Take care. Bye-bye.